just uh, bow our heads in prayer for a moment. Uh, Father, um, uh, Father, we, we like to have you do things in a way that uh, suits us, that um, uh, f- deals with our sort of uh, unrecognized emotional neediness and our unrecognized self-centeredness. And Father, we, we like it when you act in a way that fits with us and pleases us. But Father, you're God, not us. And so, Father, you are a God who bestows grace, that gives grace to sinners and to unredeemed sinners and to redeemed sinners, and you continue to give us grace. And we are here today to be in your presence, to receive grace from your hands. And we ask, Lord, that you grant us open and hungry hearts to receive receive the grace from you this morning that we desperately need. And, uh, and to respond in a worthy manner. And Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to do that. And we ask and thank all these things in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Hope you don't mind me insulting you that you, all, you and I all have unrecognized self-centeredness and neediness. But there, there you go. Uh, I've never been to a mosque. I mean, I've been outside of mosques, but I've never been to a mosque. Uh, never gone inside it for uh, for one of their prayer services. I've uh, been to a Buddhist wedding ceremony, but that Buddhist wedding ceremony uh, was in a um, uh, was in a uh, a house, not a, a Buddhist temple. Uh, I've been to an anthroposophical dedication service in an anthroposophical church, and none of you have heard of anthroposophs anthro. I'm going to get mixed up. Anyway, most of you have probably never heard of it. But the fact is, I I haven't been to most of these places. I sort of know, or I think I know, what Muslims do uh, in terms of the different prayers that they say, uh, and they might gather for prayers. Um, I don't know if it's one of those things, if I talk to a very devout Muslim watching something on TV, they'd say, no, no, that's not right, or that's not right, or, you know, they're doing the morning prayer in the afternoon, or something like that. I know that often... Uh, television and movies get uh, things about the Christian services not right. It's very common. Uh, And if anybody from Hollywood's listening, our congregation will release me to be a technical advisor periodically uh, at good Hollywood rates, uh, which will go to the church mission fund, not to me, uh, to help you get those things straight. Anyway, uh, one of the things uh, that if you're uh, not that familiar with the Christian faith that you might know about Christians is that they do something, and some people call it the Mass, and some call it Holy Communion, and some call it the Eucharist, and some call it the Lord's Supper. And, and, and if you're a, like a, a Muslim or just a secular Canadian tuning in or a Buddhist or somebody with a bespoke spirituality, you might know those things. And, um, and, so, and, and of course, Christians know that, and we're familiar with it. So this is actually a very different type of a, of a, of a, of a, a sermon today. Because what we just, what I read just a couple of minutes ago is where that comes from. It's where it comes from and, and sort of why it is that Christians do this. Uh, this thing called the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. So <clears throat> let's look at it. If, uh, if you're just from an outsider trying to sort of figure out what we're all about, this is like a brilliant time. You know, one of the main things that Christians do, it's we get the origin story, so to speak. And for us who are Christians... Uh, we don't talk about this enough. I probably don't talk about it enough, about what is the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion and uh, why it's significant and what happens and how we should do it. And so let's look. And, um, 
I, if you were to take my preaching class, I would tell you never have seven points. I have seven points, <laughs> so I'm going to flunk myself. Uh, but they're all very simple. And uh, in fact, actually, if you sort of want to hear them, it is, you know, here, here's the first thing. Uh, that what you're, you're actually going to be surprised is that uh, it's simple. It is simple. It is very simple. So let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 22 uh, to 31. There's sort of two stories there. The part that we're interested initially with is 22 to 25. Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 25. And uh, what's just happened in the flow of this ancient eyewitness biography of Jesus um, is that just before this, uh, we've had a, a bit of the fact we've had the Jesus and his disciples as observant Jews uh, they have been celebrating the Passover supper, and at a key point in the third part of the Passover supper, uh, Jesus says to Judas that one of you will, not to, to all of them, one of you will betray me, and he never outs Judas, uh, but he does say, woe to that man who betrays me. It would be better if he was never born. It was a very, very sobering moment, and that's what happens just before this. I talked about it last week, if you're curious. It's a very sobering moment, and now this story happens, and here's how it goes. Verse 22, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, some of you, uh, maybe who are, you know, seekers, you go, uh, is that like, is that all? <laughs> like, isn't there more? Um, and some of you might actually think uh, it seems a bit lame. And some of you might think it seems a bit gross. This is my blood that you have to drink. It sounds like a vampire. Uh, and I'm going to return to that. The outside, how some people from the outside, it, it sounds, well, way too simple. It sounds a bit lame and it sounds a, big, uh, a bit gross. But some of you who watch, and this might be for some of you, you, you heard me read this and you go, George, that's not what we say when we do a communion service. We say something different. Like, why didn't, why did Jesus say this one thing here, but why do we say something different when we do, like in a few, later on we're going to do a communion service, why is there this difference? And some of you who, uh, you know, listen to some of the, the different YouTube the, uh, things and TikTok things of ex-evangelicals and people who have left the Christian faith and, and skeptics, they'll jump on this and go, aha, aha, you see, you see that? This is why you can't trust the Bible. Because it, it says different things, like they don't get it right. And a lot of times we don't know how to handle that when people say it. And uh, actually there's going to be an announcement about that that will help you later on. But what I'd like to say right now is something, just, it's a very important bit of a sidebar to help you understand what's, why it's different here than the other places. And, and uh, why you don't have to worry about it, but in fact should rejoice in it. Um, there's a book that came out, uh, I think, within the last 12 months. I think at least two of you have read it, and it's about this, the founding of the denomination that we're in. 
and its early days and, and bringing us sort of up to about the year 2021 or 2022. And uh, what you might not know is that I actually got asked to write one of the chapters in the book as a memoir. And uh, what I did is I covered the years 1994, a particular thing at the end of June 1994 to the uh, end of August in 2004. And the, the reason they asked me, the editors and the compilers asked me to write this, is um, because uh, our denomination was founded out of, a, of an organization called Essentials. And I was the chair of that organization from 1999 to 2004, to 19, 1994 to 2004, when in 2004 it was announced that we had started this entity called the Anglican Network in Canada. I was the chair for that, for those 10 years. You're, my wife, if you talk to her afterwards, she can say about all of the different scars I got from that process. But for that 11 years, I was at every single meeting, including the planning meetings. I was at every event. I didn't miss anything. And I was the chair and the organizer of many of those events. So they asked me to write a memoir about it. Now, uh, and I wrote it. Uh, I did it because, and I didn't uh, consult a whole pile of documents. It had been a very, very important time in my life. If I was writing, I guess, a very academic thing, I, I, I would have done a bit of research, but I didn't have to do research. I, I was there. I lived it all. And if I had to do some more research, if they wanted something more academic, I'd get on the phone. I'd call up Klaus. I'd get on the phone and call up Roger. I'd get on the phone, phone and call up Cheryl and David and uh, a couple of the other people who were at a lot of those things, not all of the things, but a lot of them, and we would compare notes to make it even more accurate. Now, I was just able to do this just out of my memory because I was actually there. Now, imagine, though, now somebody said, George, could you do a paper on those 10 years leading up to the start of the Anglican Church of Canada? Well, the Anglican Church of Canada, the first general synod, took place in 1893. I couldn't do that. I'd, I mean, I could do it, but I'd have to do what most of you would do. I, there's no obviously people left who were there. I'd have to look at written documents, and I'd have to try to compare the written documents. And when I wrote my piece, afterwards, people who were scholars of Canadian history, they might look and say, oh, George got this bit from here, and oh, he didn't give a footnote there like he should have, and I never heard of this. I think George just made that up. <laughs> and, and other scholars also looking at the, other, the documents, they would be able to critique it. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because it's very, very important. Up until the later part of the 1800s, if you went back in a time machine and you asked an early church father or you asked somebody in the year to, uh, 1500 or 1800, all smart people, they would just tell you that the Gospels are what is claimed if you read the original documents, that there were eyewitness documents. And the eyewitnesses just report on what eyewitnesses had seen and talked about. In other words, they would have just said that when you were reading the Gospels, it's like reading my chapter in the book. You're hearing an eyewitness speak. But in the late 1800s, under the influence of a guy by the name of Hegel, a group of German scholars believed that they understood how religious movements developed according to Hegelian principles and how it took all of this long time and there were all of these steps. And they believed, because they were good Hegelians, that they understood how that worked. And of course, if that model was going to work, 
then the New Testament couldn't be written by eyewitnesses. It had to be written 150, 200 years later so that their Hegelian theory could work. Now, nobody dates the book as late as those German scholars in the late 1800s. Like, it sort of sucks to say that John was written in the year 200, then you find a document, a piece, a manuscript that shows that was written at least 80 years earlier. Like, that's sort of a defeater for the theory. But it, it's carried on and it's dragged on. And so often what happens is many scholars still basically think that what's happening is they're comparing documents. And so if the documents don't say the exact same thing, they say, well, that's been invented or something like that. But just just take it that there's actually no evidence that it was written so late. And in fact, I think there's very, very good evidence. And increasingly over time, they've been doing these remarkable studies about names and places uh, and the frequency of names and, uh, and how the customs are. Like when they have very, very common names, you add an extra bit to it. Judas was a very, very common name, so they add a bit to it. Like, and it's amazing. The more they know about the past, the more accurate the New Testament is and the new, more accurate the Gospels are, and the, more a- and the more likely it is that it had to be written by eyewitnesses very, and, and checked by eyewitnesses very close to the time. And, and that's just, that's just every, like, as, as archaeologists and scholars learn more about the past, that just becomes increasingly the direction of modern knowledge. And, and, and so what, what we're seeing here is eyewitnesses. Now, wh- why does that, how does that affect it being worded differently? Well, some of you have taken classes from Steve Griffin. And I bet you if you've taken some classes from Steve Griffin... He said some things the same in different lectures, right? And if even in the same lecture, he probably just doesn't say it once, like he's a robot, uh, human beings often repeat things. And in this sermon, for instance, you might hear me say, for instance, that it is simple, or you might later on hear hear me say it's surprisingly simple, or it's uh, unexpectedly simple, Those aren't contradictions. If one of you later on was saying George's first point was it is simple, another person wrote down it is surprisingly simple, another person writes down it is unexpectedly simple, and then later on somebody said, you're all contradicting. No, you're not contradicting. George said all three of those things. So it's not as if it's just, you know, Jesus like a robot, this is my body, and he's programmed to only say this is my body. Oh, if you've received communion from me over the years, I've said a, diff- a variety of different things. And in a talk, I might express the same idea several different ways, and they write it down that. That's all you're seeing. In fact, actually then, rather, it's actually a sign that it's more realistic about what actually human be- what human beings actually do, and the differences are showing you a more realistic picture of how human beings actually function that rather than being a defeater about the text, it's a reason to be more confident in the text. And there is absolutely no reason to think that the text is written as late as some scholars want to put it. And so if you look at the four different original accounts, three of them in the eyewitness biographies, one in Matthew, one in Mark, one in Luke, and then one written by in an early letter, Uh, you'll see slightly different wordings, and that's reflected in how we do our liturgy. But what you can trust is that this goes right back to Jesus. 
and he institutes it. And it is surprisingly simple, but if you take it in its very basic simplicity, it is profoundly beautiful. And part of the beauty is this. You know, like, let, let, let's look at it again. Verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. In other places it says, Take and eat, this is my body. Or take and eat, this is my body given for you. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, part of what's so beautiful about that is not only the words beautiful, which we're going to look at more in a moment. These very, very simple words can be said by Christian believers in Tehran or Shanghai meeting in a room behind closed doors because of persecution. If you go to visit the missionaries who support in Angola and go to one of their church plants, these very simple words can be said under a tree in a village that in many ways still uses the farming techniques of 150 years ago. You can go to an ancient cathedral in Paris or England and you can hear these same words. Or you can be in the Ottawa Little Theatre on a Sunday morning and hear these same words. They are beautiful and they are profound. And they are something that Christians in all sorts and conditions of life can partake of the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion. Now, it's important to remember not just that it's simple, but that it is in a story. These words of Jesus are in a story or an eyewitness biography. Listen to the words again. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, I've talked to you, you know, before. I like watching movies, by and large. I mean, a lot of movies are not very good, but if I find a good movie, I, I really like it. And one of the things that characterizes bad movies is they just stick things in randomly to try to make the movie more exciting or more titillating or create tension. It has nothing to do with the story. They, they just throw in, a, I don't know, for some random reason, the woman walking around in her underwear. Or they throw in an explosion. Or they throw in a hostile police examination. But as the story goes on, it has nothing to do with the story. You know, it was just simply put that somebody in Hollywood said, oh, I don't want the people to fall asleep. Uh, let's have the woman take her top off. Okay, oh, let's just have the police have a hostile investigation, which we never follow up on. It has nothing to do with the story. Those are just crappy, right? They're crappy movies, crappy stories. That's what they are. But in a good one, in a well-done one, the different parts of the story help make the whole story work. And, and afterwards, you know, you can ask... Um, when I mention a movie, by the way, I'm not recommending it necessarily that you watch it. But, like, if you watch the, the third season of Fargo, and there's this random type of thing at the beginning that sets the whole thing off. But if you 
if, if you look at it and you, you talk to other people who've watched it, they say, no, no, that, that's really interesting because what they're doing is they're prefiguring this and prefiguring that. And you go, oh, yeah, that's what they're doing. You can actually have a discussion around it and see how it all fits together. So one of the things we can say for a fact is that people wouldn't read these stories, continue to be reading these stories, if they uh, didn't have, if they weren't well put together, <laughs> if they were just crappy. And so we can ask, not just, you see, and often when Christians disagree about communion, what happens is they get caught up arguing about tradition or theology or philosophy and they forget that the words of institution, that's what it's called, are in a story. And they don't get, go back to look at the story. Like, why is it in this story? <laughs> like, what's it doing in the story? And that's what we need to do. So you say, okay, well, George, what's going on? Why, why is this story here? Well, let, let's listen to it again. And as they were eating, and he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body, or take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus explaining and and Mark recording it. Why does Mark record it? Because Mark understands afterwards that Jesus explains the story that you're reading. And not only does he explain the story you're reading, you see the story you're reading, Mark, explains the big story of the Bible. And that's what Jesus is doing here. This is part of those, there's several key sayings of Jesus throughout the gospel that explains the story, gives you the purpose and the meaning of the story. And what you see here is Jesus explaining the story, which explains the big story. H- how does he do that? Well, first of all, as we went through it, and I'm not going to you know, reiterate it, is uh, the Jewish people, um, they had a, a celebration called the Passover, which celebrated how God had acted to deliver them from slavery and bondage in Egypt into a freedom where he was to be their king, the, the, the God. And, and, and part of that is that the shedding of a, of a blood of a lamb, and if a, if, a, if a Jewish family or any family was to shed the blood of a lamb, an innocent lamb, lay their hands on it, the, blood, the, the lamb is killed, and, 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 and the blood is taken and put in on the entrance of the house, and if they stay inside, then as God's judgment was going to pass over the, the nation of Egypt, anybody who was, in a sense, covered by this, the blood of the shed lamb, and uh, they, they were covered by that. The, the, the judgment of God didn't fall on them. It, it fell on the people committed to slavery and enslaving and, and believed it was their right, and that was judged. And they remembered that. They still remember to this day our Jewish friends. And so the first thing is that what's happening is that the Jewish people, when they remembered it, they had not just a a meal, uh, but they actually had to have certain types of food in the meal. And the meal actually had four parts because part of it was retelling the story so that people would remember 
what God had done for them. And part of it as well, if you go back and look at the, the foundational texts in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they were also not just to retell the story of what God has done, but to look forward to the day when the Messiah would come, the final day. And it's in that meal, at the third part of the meal, that Jesus interrupts the meal to do something. And he takes the bread that they were using, and they would have already eaten, maybe it's towards the end of it, and it would have been bread without leaven. That's why we use wafers that have no leaven in them when we receive it. And the cup would have been a cup of wine because that's what they would have drunk. And so on one hand, it's very significant that he's, he's, he's con- connecting the, his, what's about to happen to this very ancient event and this ancient event that promises that sometime in the future the Messiah will come. And, and the other thing that he's doing is, as I, I tried to explain last week, uh, the Jewish people, they, they begin their day at sundown. We sort of begin our day technically at midnight, where psychologically we think our day begins when we wake up in the morning. But for the Jewish people, still to this day, the day begins when the night, when sundown happens, and the day ends with sundown. And so what we're seeing here is we're seeing this unbelievably chaotic and packed 24-hour period that's all the very first day of the Passover and the story of the Exodus and the promise of the Messiah and the, the remembering of the lamb that's been slain and how they're covered, that's fully in their mind. And in that 24-hour period, Jesus sacrifices, a, a, a celebrates a Passover supper because he's an observant Jew. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pray that God would take, spare him from this hour, uh, but he's offering to drink the cup, and we'll look at that next week. We're going to see Judas betray him, and he's going to be captured. We're going to see him being taken to the different Rome, uh, Jewish, and, and all of the different authorities, and, and how they ultimately just hand him over to death, and we're going to see him stripped, and we're going to see him whipped and humiliated, and we're going to see him drag his cross through the streets. We're going to see all of the apostles have fled, and we're going to see him die on a, have his, nail, his arms and his feet nailed to a cross, and we're going to see him die, and we're going to see him say things from the cross before he dies, and we're going to see that, make sure that he's really dead. We're going to see a spear piercing his side and blood and water flowing out, and we're going to see before this 24-hour period is over, some men take him, and they embalm him, and they put him in a tomb, and that's all going to happen in 24 hours, the first day of Passover. And the people are running around, and they're afraid, and they're going to be hiding for a couple of days. And then there's going to be this this crazy, crazy, crazy thing where women, good grief, women in those days, they say he's actually, that the tomb is empty and that he's alive, and they saw him, and they're going to see that the tomb is empty, and then later they're all going to see it. But in that 24-hour period, what is Jesus doing? He's giving them a 5,000-feet-in-the-air view of what's happening. He's saying, you see the Passover supper? You see what's going to happen in the garden? You see what's going to happen with the betrayal? You see the trial? You see my humiliation? You see my being stripped naked? You see the beatings? You see my death? You're going to be seeing all of these things and what's really happening. What you need to understand is really happening is this. I'm going to have my body broken for you. I'm going to have my blood shed for you. What does that mean is I'm going to take into myself that punishment 
I'm going to stand in your place. I will stand in your place. And the judgment of God that should fall on you will fall on me. And it's not just that I am going to die in your place. But you know how there was that whole thing about me taking God, taking the people for himself? This is a new covenant, a brand new start for the human race. And it's not going to be just for Jewish people. It's going to be for people in Singapore and people in Uganda and people in Nigeria and people in Venezuela. And it's going to be for people in Manhattan and people in Ottawa. It's going to be for people in Israel. And I'm creating a brand new covenant. And a covenant is, uh, is uh, like a marriage is like a pale reflection of a covenant. And marriage isn't as good an example nowadays because we Canadians think of marriage as a contract which you enter into and then you break when the terms of the business arrangement no longer work for you. But this is God pledging that he will be your God in an intimate connection of love and affection and protection and blessing. And when he has entered into this new covenant with you, he will never let you go. And he will deal that's all that's wrong with you. And this covenant will begin on this side of the grave and it will carry you through the grave, through death, and it will be for all eternity, and it is a hope of glory, and it is a covenant that will end up with you being able to stand naked and unashamed in the very presence of the triune God in a new heaven and a new earth. And that's what I am, in, that's what I am accomplishing on the cross, and that's what I'm instituting, and that's what's going on. despite the appearances, that's what's going on. And unlike the kingdoms where the emperor sends out the troops to die on his behalf, and under, unlike all of the gods that you know that have you die for them, this is the king who dies for his citizens. And this is the god who dies for his creatures out of love. So when we read these words, we're reading Jesus' 5,000 feet, meters or feet up in the air explanation of what's going on. Now, some of you might say it still seems gross and it still seems lame. I haven't lost you, my Muslim friend or my secular friend or one of you who are here and wonders about it. That leads to the next point. Let's read it again. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing, it broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You notice that prediction of the resurrection. What we need to understand is it does sound lame and it does sound a bit gross, but it is a means of grace from the triune God for ordinary people like you and me. What Jesus is instituting is a very significant means of grace. It comes right from the triune God, right from the heart and the power and the mind of the triune God is a means of grace for ordinary people like you and me. Well, why it does seem weak, but you know what? 
It's this story is only remembered because the men who embalmed the people who saw Jesus people in those days knew that nobody survived crucifixion. Romans were batting a thousand at killing people with crucifixion. A thousand. And in a sense, their record still stands because they killed Jesus. <laughs> they batted a thousand. They saw his blood loss. They saw his dehydration. They saw the blood come from his side. They saw him carried down, obviously dead, collapsing on the ground. Any of you who've watched uh, the 13 Hours, I have to confess it's one of my favorite movies. There's a very, very uh, terrible scene towards the end where one of the, the, the people who died is thrown down. They, they can't get him down from the building, and they just drop him. And his friend screams, No! And anybody who sees the body drop knows that the guy's not alive. And they would have seen the, the Roman guys. Why, they, they're not going to take Jesus down very carefully and reverently. No, they just pull things out, knock him down, the thud. He's embalmed. And he's dead. The only reason we know this story is because he rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, that's a game changer. No offense, my Muslim friends, but it means that Islam is not true. No offense, my Buddhist friends or my secular friends, but it means that Jesus is who he said he is and his teaching is trustworthy and it comes from a place of great power because he has defeated death and he has defeated that which causes death and he's done this in a public way and he's done it for you and me. And that means that this is a mighty act of grace from the triune God for us. And if he offers us a means of grace, it might not look like what we expect power to do. And, and it might look lame and it might look gross, but it comes from the one who looked at you and loved you and died for you and has defeated death. Well, we look at it and... One of the, the significances of the, of the symbolism, you know, it, it, they, they didn't really, no, nobody sat there and thought, oh, I just drank Jesus' blood. That's pretty gross. They would have found that gross. They would have found it actually probably more gross than you do because the Jewish law forbids it. And we have cultures where some of us will eat things which are made of blood, but they, they it actually would have been more gross for them. But what, it, what this is symbolizing is not only is that we remember what Jesus does for us on the cross, we remember what our destiny is in Christ, and, and, and what we know, if, if we're all at all honest, I need the inside of me to change. I need that place where my, the, the choosing to do wrong is changed, where my, my, my choosing to be pride, proud is changed, where my lack of generosity, where my lack of forgiveness, where my desire for revenge, where these hard things from within me, where they emerge, that's where I need God's grace to come in. And we're reminded of it when we feed on him. It is this powerful way to say, no, no, this isn't just sort of like putting something on your hair and doing like some mix, lipstick to make the externals look. This is something that's 
The, the grace is for all of you. The, the redemption is for all of you. And, and, and we need to be remembered that Jesus is, comes. He comes. He lives within us. We are now born again. And, and, and we need to be reminded that of, we need to, to think of get who he is and what he's done for us and his words. We need to get them inside of us because it's on the inside that he changes us. And so he's given us this powerful means of grace that we remember this and we reenact it. And we think it's lame because we say, like, I, you know, I've heard, I've heard people say, you know, like, uh, you know, um, Ramadan is, is way better than anything Christians do because we have to fast for all of this length of time, even when it's really hot. And, and, and you know, we look, at, we look at things like yoga, and I'm not putting any of these things down, but from our, 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 our Canadian point of view, these things, they resonate with us. They show willpower. They show losing weight. They show mind control. They show how to get more flexible and how to get the body in, in, in shape. And they, they all speak to us and they all look like they have power. But the fact of the matter is, is that you can lose all the weight you want to lose and you get to be the perfect weight and you can get unbelievable mind control and you can have unbelievable flexibility and strength and you can have fantastic physical discipline. But the fact of the matter is, it's all doomed because you will die. Go to a graveyard and you'll see where you end up. It doesn't matter how strong you are, how fit you are, how fantastic your willpower is, it all dies. This is a means of grace. What does a means of grace mean? I, I, my, my time's going, but... I, like a perfect way to understand a means of grace is this. If you, if you go back, and I, I should have looked it up. I think it's 2 Kings 18, but, or, but I might be wrong about it. 1 Kings 18, I might be wrong about it. There's this time when Elijah is going to have a, a contest with the prophets of Baal. And they, they, have the, they agree they're going to have a contest to see which God will send fire. And there's like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them. And they, they set the altar up and they put the animal on it and they... They, you know, they use their willpower and they use their physical power and they use their magical incantations and they do, they cut themselves and they sacrifice themselves and they do everything they possibly can do. At the end of the day, the fire doesn't come. And then Elijah comes and he takes some stones and he kills an animal, he puts some wood and he pours water on it, he pours water on it, he pours water on it, he pours water on it. And, and, and just so you know, I'm not a camper, I've said this before, but I sort of do understand that if you want to start a fire, you don't pour water on the wood first. Like, that's just not how you start fires. That's not going to work ever. And then, and then he prays, and God sends the fire. So Elijah acts in obedience to do what God tells him to do, even though it looks weak, and even though it looks foolish, and even though it looks like it will never accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. But because he does what God asks him to do, God does what only he can do, which is send the fire. And that's at the heart of the means of grace. And by the way, if you're watching this, we Christians often also think it's lame. That's why we want to try to have something maybe with special music or some special lighting or smoke machines or lasers to try to create some more powerful emotion. Or why we want to have, you know, get me dressed up in lots of robes and parade around and have choirs and all of this stuff because we sort of worry that these mere words aren't going to be enough. But the fact of the matter is, is that all those things just distract. The means of grace aren't if you have lots of processions and lots of robes. It's not if you have a way to emotionally manipulate people to feel particular emotions. It's not connected to any of that. It's the simple, obedient act of repeating the words of Jesus and receiving the bread and the wine. 
in obedience to him, and God brings the fire. And he's not interested, per se, in making you richer, making you slimmer, making you more muscular, having you have better mind control. He has a way better plan for you, and that plan is to be in the new heaven and the new earth and to stand in his presence. And only he knows how to get there. And so we humbly receive. It can be in a great cathedral. Nothing wrong with processions. Nothing wrong with robes. But you and I today, or that church that earlier today met under a tree in a field, still using farming techniques from hundreds of years ago, you and I, in obedience, say the words, receive the bread and the wine, and God gives grace. He fits you for heaven. I just, because uh, of the time, I'm just going to say a couple of things. Um, I'm going to just very, very briefly. Um, the story which comes right after this, actually, we'll read it. I'll be very brief. It's very important to understand communion, this story that happens next. And look at this, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Passover meal is over. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, <laughs> even, if, even though they all fall away, I will not. <laughs> it's a proud and arrogant statement. He doesn't say, oh, Jesus, I'm going to fall away? Have mercy on me. But no, no, you're wrong, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter doubles down. He says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, here's the thing, very briefly, because of the time. The Lord's Supper is not for the, the elite. It's not for the people who make believe they're worthy. The Lord's Supper is for redeemed sinners. The Lord's Supper is for a redeemed sinner like you and me. That's who it's for. You want to know something else which is really interesting? You know, on one hand, Peter and all those disciples were right. They, they were wrong. They would deny Jesus before the night was over, but they said they'll die for him. Every single one of those disciples, except John, died a martyr's death. Everyone. And John died in exile in a place that now we would think of as a holiday place, but back then was in exile. And they all died refusing to say anything other than that Jesus had risen from the dead. They died for a fact, for the good news. What's the difference? You see, the difference is that Peter says this and they said this out of their self-will, out of their mind control, out of their control, out of me control, out of my agenda, out of my power. 
and part of the mystery. I, I long for the day we can have a church building where we can kneel for communion. If you want to receive communion by kneeling, I long for that day to return. It's part of the Anglican tradition to kneel to receive communion. Why? What's the difference between now and what will happen to them later? It's this profound truth of the Bible. I am taller when I kneel before him. I am taller when I kneel before Jesus and receive grace from him. It is completely against what the world would say. They'd say, George, you're shorter when you kneel. Well, generally you are. And if I kneel to an idol, I've only become smaller. And if I kneel to fears, and if I kneel to lies, I've only become smaller. But if I kneel to him, I am taller. And I can be, by God's grace, like Cramner, who as he was dying, burned at the cross, burned at a stake. He had earlier denied the faith, and then he recanted, he repented, and he wanted, he held his hand, the story is he held his hands in the flame because he wanted that to die, be burned first. You are taller when you bow, when you kneel. Final thing, I, I've, uh, could you put up the, two, the first of the two sentences, Claire? This is a little bit of help, uh, just as we bring to a close, about how to receive uh, communion. The first thing is, actually, I'm just going to say a challenge uh, to those who are online. Um, I understand why there's lots of reasons why you're not receiving, com- coming here to receive communion. I just want to urge you, you are passing up a means of grace. I want to urge you. I mean, it might be that you can't come most of the time. It, it, I, I, I know there can be health and other types of reasons, but I want to urge you that you are passing up a means of grace. And for those of you who are watching, and maybe you're in a city far away, uh, maybe you're a university student who can't get up early enough on a Sunday morning, you're watching it later on from the University of Ottawa, I, I'd just like to, to urge you to consider that maybe God has brought you to watch these services because he wants you to begin that person who begins to pray that a church can be planted in your city. I want to I challenge you that this might exactly be while you're watching this, that you can be, if you're a university student, the means by which we can get back on the campus to share the gospel. And I want to challenge you to bring it to God in prayer and, if he's, and to share it with us so that we can join with you in prayer that God will plant a church so that you can go on a Sunday morning and we'll miss having you watch, but that you can receive the means of grace of the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning. I want to challenge you. And these sentences are going to be very, very helpful for us to understand how to receive communion. And they come from the, the Book of Common Prayer. It comes from the English Reformation. And part of them are are yellowed on on purpose. Notice what we do. The first thing is, this is traditionally, if you were to go to a, if you had come to my 8 o'clock service back in the day with an altar rail, and I went along the things, you would have heard me say this every Sunday as I was giving you communion. And it explains what communion is and and what you should be praying into. And if you'd like to find these words later on, we can send them to you. It's in the, the, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. But notice we don't hide the words. We don't try to, like, we just say the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. 
We're being invited to remember that his body was given for you. And notice this, preserve. Part of the means of grace is not that we become Christians through it, but those of us who are Christians, redeemed sinners, it's a means by which God preserves us body and soul unto everlasting life. Unto everlasting life. And then I say, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. Once again, remembering that he had died for us. And hear this, feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. As you prepare to receive communion, you can think of these words and you say, Lord, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm watching these other people receiving and I want you to help me feed on you in my heart. And you might say, I don't know what that's going to be like emotionally. I, I don't know what it's going to be like emotionally. Maybe it's going to be very moving. Maybe it'll be nothing. But help me not only now, but always to feed on you in my heart and feed on you in my heart with thanksgiving for who you are and what you've said and what you've accomplished for me. And then after you'd have received the bread, I would come along and I would say the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we're just copying the words of Jesus, which was shed for you. Once again, notice this, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Drink this, what? In remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. And we can say, Lord, grip me with the gospel. I'm not thankful. Help me to be thankful. Not necessarily the emotion of thankfulness, but the life of thankfulness, which is more important than the emotion of thankfulness. You see, when we have a life of thankfulness, it is easier to do hard things. It is easier to to be faithful. It is easier to read the Bible. It is easier to be generous. It's easier to forgive. And so we can ask God, not just for the emotion of thankfulness, but the reality, the life of thankfulness. I invite you to stand. our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for what he did for us on the cross, for his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank and praise you, Father, that you have brought us to a faith in Christ. For those of us who have come to a faith, a personal faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, Father, if there are any here or any who are watching who have not yet come to a faith and trust in in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we ask, Father, that you help them to put their faith and trust in him. We thank you, Father, for Jesus, and we thank you, Father, that you have provided this very, very simple but very beautiful and profound means of grace, whereby you preserve us body and soul unto everlasting life, that you fit us for an eternal life with you in the new heaven and the new earth. And we ask, Father, that you help us to be thankful for what Christ has accomplished for us. Not just as an emotion, Father, although we love the emotion of thankfulness. And if you give us that as well, that's great. But more than the emotion, we ask, Lord, that you grant us the habits and the the mind and the tone of life and, 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 and disciplines of life that emerge out of a deep thankfulness for what you have done for us in the person of your Son and his death upon the cross on our behalf. 
And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.